Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. This is part 2 of two weeks ago. Um, if you missed that message, you really do need to get into it. I'll try to do a bit of a recap. The title of today's message is called A Family Unworried. A family unworried. Who gets worried? You can like sort of talk back in church. It's not like school. A family unworried. A family unworried. So let's see how this unpacks. <clears throat> well, this week we've got a couple of um, birthdays in our family. Uh, tomorrow's my sister-in-law's birthday. Um, then it's my birthday. And the most important birthday of all is Kayla's. Um, coming up next Saturday. And she's let me know about that since... Oh, at least for the last 360 days. <laughs> um, and um, one thing you have to do with birthdays, you have to go get birthday cards and all that. And I'm sure that all of us have been um, exposed of the, to the influence of the Hallmark card, right? Hallmark cards. Um, I've got a card over here. It's actually, it says, for my beautiful daughter. And it looks pretty. It reads pretty. It looks lovely. It makes you feel nice and like nice in the inside as well. Um, I've actually got a, a quote from another Hallmark card, um, which we'll chuck up on the screen. Look at this. Everyone, look at this. Friends make the good things better and the bad things not so bad simply by being there. Oh. Doesn't that make you feel good? You know, it's just like, it's short. It's just... It just reads well. It just looks beautiful. It makes you feel nice and fuzzy. Hallmark cards. Did you know that Christians also have their Hallmark cards? Isn't that right? You go to Nakurong, you see a whole bunch of them. And get this, we have our Hallmark quotes as well, don't we? We've taken these quotes and we've made them nice. We've made them beautiful. We've shaped them. We've molded them. And we just read them and it's like, ah. And we've even moved these quotes on sort of things like Instagram and all that. How many of you would be honest enough to say that my Bible content, the, the, the way that I actually consume the Bible predominantly for the week, is not opening up the Word of God. It's actually going to Instagram. And if someone just posts a little quote from the Bible, that was uh, anyone would actually? There are lots of Christians who do that because it looks beautiful. It looks lovely. It's just like, it makes you go, ah. Well, today we are actually possibly going to be going into the portion of Scripture which is possibly the most dangerous for Christians. Because somehow along the track over the many um, decades or so, we have managed to take parts of this portion of Scripture and we have hallmarked it. We have actually made it beautiful. We've shaped it lovely. We put it on cards. We put it on posters. We read it. We put it in memes and, and we put it on Instagram posts and we look at it and we go, that makes me feel nice and warm and fuzzy. The only problem with nice and warm, nice and warm and fuzzy is that that sucker is not going to change your life. That sucker is not going to renew your mind. That sucker is not going to actually open up a doorway and allow you to step into a brand new world that God has offered before you. And you know what? We feel nice and warm and fuzzy and we get sold, um, sold short so many times. So we're going to look at um, this um, passage of Scripture, um, and um, it's, it's a very dangerous one. I mean, I think probably the most um, hallmarked verse in the Bible we're going to look at, is, it's this. It says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah. 
Doesn't that sound warm and fuzzy? God's going to give me stuff. It's awesome. He's like Santa Claus. It sounds sweet. It sounds like a Hallmark card. The problem is we don't necessarily understand what Jesus is talking about and the invitation that's open to us. So once again, um, we're going to lean in and listen to what Jesus is teaching us. I'm going to read from verse 19, do a short recap from two weeks ago. Don't worry, we're not playing Madonna today. haven't got time. Um, but we will um, move on from there to actually this portion. So from verse 19, Jesus is saying this. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Um, did I say the wrong thing before? Treasures on earth. Treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. And I know we've been doing this series for months and months and months now, but please understand and recognize that Jesus is still doing exactly the same thing. He is announcing a brand new world that has been opened up onto humanity. It is called the kingdom of God. Any single time you see Jesus open his mouth, every single time he's talking or he's doing, he is either demonstrating or he is announcing this kingdom, this brand new world. And as we've been journeying through this, we have been seeing that this is great news. This is wonderful news. And when he talks about this kingdom, this is not a kingdom that I get to enter into once I like kick the bucket here after like 70 or 80 years and die and, and I get to go to heaven. No, the kingdom of God is supposed to break in right here, right now, 2021 in this little auditorium in Camelo in the city of Armada, like right here, right now. Could you like imagine what that would be like? That word is actually called repentance. If you can imagine, if you can rethink what it would look like. And that's what he's doing. And as we found out two weeks ago, right in the middle of this teaching of this kingdom, right in the middle of it, right at the halfway mark, he lets us know of a character which we may be completely oblivious of. A character who is a rival to our allegiance to Jesus, a rival to Jesus and a character, if we're unaware of, that may actually stand in the way of you and I stepping into this brand new world that Jesus has actually opened up for us. And his name is Mammon. Mammon. Do you remember us talking about Mammon? I've got a um, picture in 1909. This was um, painted um, of this character, Mammon. And last week we were talking about this um, real power that lies behind wealth and lies behind money, Mammon. Mammon is, a, or is an active spiritual force. Have you ever felt the grip of money and wealth? Like you grew up and you didn't have anything. And like whatever you had, you were happy to give away. Then all of a sudden, you got a bit of money and it was harder to give money away. Anyone else been in that boat? We've all been in that boat. Have you ever met someone and they, they seem to be really cool and nice and all of a sudden they have become ruthless and they step over other people and enough is never enough. Have you ever met someone like that? Have you ever been part or, or witnessed a company like that? Well, there is a spiritual force that lies behind wealth and money. If you are not aware of it, it is called mammon. 
And we live in a world that is so educated. Who was it? Was it C.S. Lewis? We've been educated into imbecility or something like that. That we are so educated that we do not understand that the worldview of Jesus, the worldview of the Apostle Paul and Peter, the worldview of all of the biblical authors actually has this worldview that there is more happening than what we can see. That there are spiritual forces and there are entities that are in play that are actually working together to dehumanize and to trap people and to ensnare people. And Jesus is saying, you just simply need to know that there is someone out there, there are things out there that are enticing you and me going for our allegiance. We just need to know that. So this picture was actually um, um, painted very, very um, intentionally. Notice again, the woman, she is like rejected the bag of coins. The bag of coins is actually held out. You could take the bag of coins and she's saying, no, I don't want the bag of coins. Instead, she is going to Mammon and say, make me as wealthy as I can. I don't want just the bag of coins. I want more than that. She's bowing. She's in this position of actually going down and bowing at this deity's feet. This woman's face is desperate. The color and the details of her clothing is symbolic of spirituality and of worship. You can even look at Mammon. Mammon doesn't even fit into the frame this emphasizing that that Maman, this is a big deal we may think that money and all that and that is a small deal and and the want for all that he says oh you know what i can handle that i can control that no 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 the spiritual forces behind there if we're not careful this is a big deal it doesn't even fit in the frame it doesn't even fit in the frame and Maman has this little smirk on his face and what Jesus is actually letting us know is that behind greed, behind lust for more and more, behind the empire building, that happens in churches as well, by the way, more and 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 more, manipulating. Oh, my goodness. Behind that is a rival. His name is Mammon. And a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was actually letting us know, how do you know if your allegiance is to Jesus or to Mammon? Well, Jesus actually asks us over and over again. I found in my life, he says, Dave, I just need to ask you again. And I've asked you this before. I just need to ask you this again. What is your relationship with wealth? How's that looking? How's that going for you? You don't want to know about my relationship with Andrew? No, no, no. I'm talking about, no, no, I'm talking about your relationship with wealth. Now, what about my relationship with like, you know, Kayla and Jackson? And, no, 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 Dave. No, no, this is the question I'm asking. How is your relationship with wealth going? Because the answer to that will actually feed into every other relationship. Because there is an entity, there is an Elohim that is actually looking. I don't know if we've covered this. In the Bible, Elohim is like a heavenly beings. Okay. There is one Yahweh, the most high God. But there are other heavenly beings that are in play you know and you can actually see their effect we know we were seeing things in afghanistan you can see the effect of principalities and powers that is evil okay jesus is just letting us know that there are some different characters in play and this is actually well known like as you read through scripture you honestly cannot read scripture and not see this language letting us know that there are other things in play which we cannot see and Jesus is just simply letting us know, you just have to be aware of that kind of stuff. How's your relationship with wealth going? And he goes through a couple of things. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. He's saying, what's your priority system, Dave? Seriously, what, like, where do your affections lie? Because where I put my things tells me where, what says where my affections are at. 
Where are your affections at? Are my affections with the kingdom or on earth? And if, I, if, I, if I'm going to have an aspiration that, that my affections and my treasure is going to be wrapped up with heaven, we need to understand as far as Jesus is concerned, as far as the Israel scriptures are concerned, God seems to have this preoccupation with the poor and with the vulnerable and those who are on the margins. He is continually saying, you need to look after these people. You need to take care of these people. If you have some stuff, make sure you are using what you are blessed with in order to look after those who are vulnerable. Look after those who are poor. That's kind of what he's saying. We went through that a couple of weeks ago. Second thing was the narrative of our life. The lamp is the body of the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Isn't that interesting? Your whole body will be full of light. That, that language, full of light, that speaks of spirituality. If you want to see someone who is actually spiritual, don't listen to their prayer. Don't just go and say, how much of the Bible do you read or how much of the Bible do you know? It all comes down to our eye. Because if your eye is good, light's going to be throughout the entire body. Isn't that good to know? But if your eye is bad, your whole body is going to be full of darkness. What does this have to do? It's talking about the, how you see the world, the narrative of your life. When we look out into the world, do we see lack? Am I part of a narrative where there's lack? Because if I'm part of a narrative where there's lack, I'm not going to be generous. I'm not going to be generous at all. This is something which I have to fight with re pretty regularly. My upbringing, uh, mum and dad came over from India. We grew up in Armadale. We didn't really have a lot. I find even now, right now, I'm constantly fighting this narrative that says, Dave, you don't have enough. You need to like, get some more. Surely you got, no, you need to get more. You need, you need to store up for like five years, ten years. Or at the same time, there comes that narrative of being more of a victim. Um... That's a really hard, when you sort of shape with the narrative where you're the victim, very, very hard to be generous. Can anyone else testify with that? Am I, you're leaving a brother standing all by himself in the middle of this auditorium and you're lying to me because we've all had to, it's a challenge for all of us, right? It's only me. What's the narrative or am I, in my imagination, am I caught up in a narrative of plenty because I'm part of God's story? And in this narrative, I am a receiver. Nothing but a receiver from a good heavenly father. So if my good heavenly father gives me stuff, I can give it away. Because if I need anything else, he'll give me more. Because I've got this identity that I am the beloved and I am a receiver. It comes down to how we see the world. What is the narrative that has caught our imagination? In other words, how good is your eye? Is your eye full of, is it healthy or is it bad? Is it full of light or is there darkness in it? And it doesn't matter if you have like two bucks to your name or two million dollars. You, you, can, you can have two million dollars and still have a good eye. You can have two dollars and have a bad eye. It doesn't matter what you actually have because Jesus is not going after actually having worldly wealth. He's asking the question, what is your relationship with that wealth? They're two different things, Okay. Beautiful. And now, does that, did that sound familiar? Just like recap? Please say that. It's like, he put so much effort into these messages and no one listens. No one knows. The worst thing is when you preach a message and someone comes and says, oh, I love when you said that. It's like, that is not what I said. <laughs> I go home, I sit with the Lord and I just cry. And he says to me, David, it's okay. They crucified me. Anyway. <laughs> 
But now we hit a bit of a problem. We hit a bit of a problem in our Bible reading because in a lot of our translations, they've split it up and they put like this little subtopic. I don't know if your Bible has that. A lot of Bibles are like, oh, do not worry. And you think, oh, Jesus is on to another subject. Um, Jesus is not on to another subject. Um, that's part of the problem with um, uh, the inclusion of verses and, and, and all that that's happened. So we think that God's, oh, Jesus has changed the subject matter. And um, to be honest, you may honestly think, you know what? Last fortnight, I mean, Dave did it pretty good, but that was like, he was like poking some bits that made me feel very uncomfortable. You know, it's like, thank goodness, like a fortnight like that, thank goodness that's over with. Dave, on to the next stuff. I don't need to worry. Fantastic. Let's talk about that. And we don't understand that um, Jesus is actually talking about the same topic, but what he's going into, he's actually talking about the implications now. The implications. And what happens so often, and a lot of tradition does that as well, is that so often we actually miss this beautiful, mysterious invitation that has been offered to us. Because as Jesus talks about, you can either serve God or Mammon, he's actually saying, if you make the decision that you're going to serve Jesus, there's some great implications. And it actually opens up a doorway of, of living. There is actually now a new way of life. And we can so easily miss that. Um, but it is absolutely extraordinary. And hopefully by the grace of God, I'm going to articulate it um, in a decent way. So from verse 25, Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and a body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown out into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble for its own. And we think, oh, Jesus is talking about another subject, but he's not. He's just continuing on the thought. And we read past it, and we don't realize that he has just said something absolutely sensational. He said something that is just seriously I'm still trying to figure out if I believe this or not. Right? Am I allowed to say that? Because like, apparently, what Jesus just said, apparently there is a way of living that is shut off and unavailable to anyone who serves Mammon. But if you serve Jesus, there is an invitation, a way of living that you and I, if we profess Jesus as our king, that we can actually step into. For those of us who actually acknowledge that there is a spiritual force, Mammon, in play, who does try to entice me and is going after my allegiance, 
But at the very same time as acknowledging that that power is there, I resist that and I say no to that and yes to Jesus. And when I say yes to Jesus, that means by implication that I'm going to be treasuring differently than the rest of this world and my eye is going to be good. So the narrative of my life is going to be completely different. That actually does say that there is a possibility that I could possibly step into which seems too good to be true. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry. An unworried life. Does that not seem ridiculous? That seems ridiculous, right? I mean, that's what I'm saying. I don't even know. That seems too good to be true. Jesus said it. Now, I'm not going to call Jesus a liar. Are you? Not outwardly. But what if he's actually saying the truth? What if he's saying the truth? Is Jesus lying or is he just simply naive? Cara Powell is the executive director of the Fuller Youth Institute and in their research, she's got a current book out and um, made three um, probably not surprising distinctives of this current generation. Um, this generation is incredibly anxious. Is that right? This generation? This generation is incredibly diverse. The diversity in this generation is insane, which ironically feeds into anxiety. Diversity actually feeds into... Because with diversity, there's no easy answer because it's diversity. Do I do this or do that? Well, there's diversity, so you can do that, 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 that. This generation is also incredibly creative. Incredibly. There is so much technology and platforms for this generation to play with and to discover and bring about any like, sort of self-expression if they want to do it. So it's a great opportunity. But anxiety is something that doesn't just exist in the younger generation, is it? It is something that is increasing, especially as the epidemic of loneliness in the Western world goes up and up and up and up. If we're going to counter the epidemic of loneliness, we as a church simply have to be family. Because if the church in the West continues like this, you fast forward 5, 10, 15 years, I have no idea what it's going to be like. But I honestly think that the rebellion to everything that's happening in the world for the church is that while everything wants to be atomized and individualized, that we actually say, I'm going to rebel against that philosophy and I am going to participate and belong to my brothers and sisters. That's the antidote. Doesn't sound sexy, does it? No. Sounds very biblical, though. Anyway. Jesus' invitation in this portion of Scripture seems far too good to be true. I mean, who can honestly say that living in your life you have not worried? And in fact, this portion of Scripture, I sometimes wonder how many people who um, live with anxieties have walked away from portions like this, which have probably been articulated not so well, feeling not better about their life, but actually worse about their life. What's Jesus talking about? Don't worry about 
what you're going to eat tomorrow. Don't worry about what's going to clothe you tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to drink tomorrow. It's that kind of worry. Don't worry about what's going to sustain you tomorrow. That's the worry. Okay? And there's a reason why he's saying you don't need to worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, because he's been announcing a kingdom. But nevertheless, worry is a real thing. And when it comes to anxieties and things like that, I just wanted to um, probably just define the kind of worry that Jesus was talking about. Okay? Um, just like that. Therefore, Jesus command, therefore I tell you, do not worry. In, uh, as you read this, Jesus seems to be assuming that there is already a current that is running. A current of running, of worry, sorry. So if you think about that, in this world, in every generation, doesn't matter who you are, in this present evil age, there is this current of worry that is already running. And in addressing this current of worry to his kingdom people, he puts a stop to that current. That's what the language seems to be suggesting here. And this honestly seems too good to be true, right? I have to preach it, man. And I find it too good to be true. G.K. Chesterton once said, the Australian, the, not the Australian, the Christian ideal, nationalism, the Christian ideal has been tried and found, well, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. Living in the grace of God as the family of God does require effort. Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Um, this week, Brett Keogh put me on to a great um, sermon from Bridgetown Church. I might actually put that link on. That was, that was really good. Um, but part of our evangelical gospel has actually not led us to be disciples or disciple-making, but actually led us to be quite passive, you know. Um, but the grace of God actually does require effort, but it's not an emphasis on... Uh, it's not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And I don't think Jesus is naive when he's actually saying this either. Let's just quickly take a helicopter view again and see what's happening. Jesus is sitting on a mountain, Sermon on the Mount, duh. He sits down in the same way Moses sits down, and he's talking about this kingdom, and in light of talking about this brand new world, this kingdom, he starts giving the laws of this kingdom, the value system of this kingdom. He starts world-building about this kingdom. But the reason why he can sit down is because there is a group of people who have decided to follow him and to gather around him. So Jesus is not talking to an individual. He is talking to a group of people who have made a decision to follow him and to gather around him. So this is spoken to a collective group of people, not to an individual. We read our Bibles like 
they are written to individuals. Only a few books of the New Testament are. The Word of God is written to the church collectively. Okay? And his random group of people, they are those who are sick. They are those under the rule of a ruthless empire. They are those who've had their property stolen. They are those who are manifesting. They are those who are literally on the outskirts of society. These are people who are losing. And Jesus says to these people, you don't need to worry. In fact, three times he gives a command. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry. Verse 21, so do not worry. Verse 34, therefore do not worry. And the word worry comes up six times in this short passage. Jesus is talking about worry. It's obviously a big deal. This group of people are obviously worried. And he's saying there is this current of worry which is running rampant, not just in your communities, but all around the world. And he says, therefore, as the king of this world, I tell you, you don't need to worry. I'm putting a stop to the worry. And as I mentioned before, Jesus is not starting a different conversation. This is a continuation. This is the implication of the previous teaching where Jesus is actually asking us the question about our relationship with wealth. The implications of a gathered people who treasure differently than the rest of the world. The implications of a community, a group of people who have good eyes, who are worrying about what will sustain them for tomorrow. This community called the kingdom of God. I want to talk about two implications from the previous section as we're going to connect it here. And I'm hopefully going to wind it up so we can see that this promise that Jesus gives to his family, his kingdom community, is not too good to be true. It can be lived and it can be existed today, but grace does take some effort. And whether or not we as a church live in this unworried state about how we're going to live tomorrow comes down to how you and I take seriously the words of Jesus and how much we really want to belong to his church. So two implications. First implication, the implication of a good eye. The implication of having a good eye. Matthew 6 verse 26, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than them? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, thrown into the fire will he not much more clothe you you of little faith so do not worry saying what shall we eat did you get that what shall we eat what shall we drink what shall we wear for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you have need of them a good eye how do you see the world what is the narrative of our life what is the narrative he said previously the lamp of the body is the eye how are we seeing the world I could go through that portion of Scripture because there is so much rabbinic technique which Jesus uses. But basically, he is using a technique where he puts forward something which is lesser but lets you know that you're greater. He's actually saying to us, look at, look, look at the birds. They're of lesser value than you. God looks after them. And then he talks about temporal and eternal. Look at the grass. How the grass is clothed. The grass is clothed. 
with his beautiful flowers. And their splendor exceeds that of Solomon's. But the flowers are temporal because they're thrown in the fire tomorrow. But you're eternal. You know what I'm saying? There's this, there's this technique of actually showing, open your eyes, okay? How do you see the world? Open your eyes. Look at the birds. Lesser value, you're much more. Look at the fields of grass, the flowers. These are temporal, you're eternal. There's this technique which he's actually saying, open up your eyes, broaden your imagination. <laughs> he says, you of little faith, I love this. This is like this, this little endearment call from Jesus talking to these broken people who are following him. He says, are you of little faith? It's this term of endearment. It's almost like, come on, chin up. Have confidence, little ones. Can you imagine that? Like when we're worried, when we have anxiety in our life and, and, and you're beating yourself up and Jesus is saying, come on, chin up. It's okay. I've got you. It amazes me that the tone of Jesus is so much more softer than my tone so often when I self-talk. Mate, I bring myself down like no one else. I, I'm the harshest tr critic of me. And to actually hear the voice of Jesus, and he says, Dave, chin up. You're okay. Lift up your heads, little one. He even lets his disciples know how useless the tool of worrying is. How can, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? But then there's this line that really drives home this point of how good or bad our eye is. It says, verse 32, For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Two narratives. Pagans don't know their heavenly Father, but you do. You can either have a narrative running through your life like the pagans. And in this case, that word pagan is not used as a pejorative, is not used as a negative. He's just simply letting us know that pagans or those who are unchurched, they have no idea of the character and nature of God. But you do. Which narrative are you going to run? It's the implication of a good eye. Implication of a good eye. I'm really running out of time. The implication of treasures in heaven. Come tonight if you want to hear it more fully banged out. The implication of treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 33 to 34. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as one. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble for itself. I think that this is definitely the most hallmarked verse in the entire New Testament. But we have some work to do. We have become so familiar with this little verse and we don't understand that this little verse takes us right back to the introduction line that Jesus starts his whole teaching, the relationship between our, us and wealth. He lets us know that worrying and treasuring are connected. The way we treasure affects our worry. Treasuring or the priorities of heaven are wrapped around the poor, the poor, are wrapped around the marginalized, especially those who are inside the faith community. Do you remember the widow's might and the indictment? This little widow who is poor, 
two small coppers, put copper coins, put those coins in the treasury at the same time as the rich, and the rich could not give a staff. And the indictment is, how could you let a woman, a widow who was poor, be in that position in your community? Did God not say over and over again, look after the widow? Well, it looks like you guys are doing a great job. Especially those who are in the faith. Galatians 6 verse 10, Therefore, whenever we have opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. This idea of seeking after his kingdom and his righteousness. We've already been through that word righteousness in the Beatitudes. This is before the cross. This is, this is before um, Paul's epistle. This is before. The more accurate translation of hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness is hungering and thirsting for God's justice. God's justice. Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. God's shalom. What would God's shalom have looked like for that widow and her two little copper coins? It would have looked drastically different, wouldn't it? He's actually pointing us back to what it means to treasure. What does it mean to treasure? To lay up treasures in heaven. He's asking the question, where do our affections lie? Kingdom affections or earthly affections? Let me ask you this question. I'm sorry to be racing, but I'm really run out of time. But, but let me ask you this question, but, but think collectively. Remember again, we took that helicopter, short helicopter view. Jesus isn't talking to an individual. He's talking to this motley crew of people gathered around. They decided to follow him. They decided, they decided to gather around him. What would the implications be for a random group of people, not individuals, but a community of people who decided to follow and gather around Jesus, who were hearing an invitation by the king to enter his kingdom and and, and actually heard and understood that the means by which to enter this means that you have a different value system than this present evil age. It means that if you were going to be citizens and, and family members of this kingdom, it means that you treasure differently and you actually have a different eye. You have a generous eye. You understand that you belong to a kingdom of plenty. You understand that you have a heavenly father who knows your needs. You understand that, 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 that you are a recipient in this narrative. Now understand, now just imagine this, if you heard all that, if you were part of all that, if you understood all that and you were in this community and you had no food and you had no clothes and you had no drink and you were part of this same community who treasured the same way as you and had the same eye as you, would you honestly be worried about where you're going to get your next meal? Not a chance. You know why? You're part of a family. They're going to feed you if you've got nothing. If you've got no clothes, they're going to clothe you. Is this not the early church? Right? Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and he's going to let me win lotto. Well, praise God if you do win lotto. But that's not what he's talking about. He is talking about you are invited into a brand new world to be citizens of his kingdom and to be kingdom people. And if anyone walks through the door and they do not have something, guess what? I will feed them. I will clothe them. I will house them. That's what he's saying. Does that not make sense? It is a question of how seriously we want to be part of this kingdom.
Chesterton was right. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. That, that, that is where it is. And I think this is an honest conversation which I am wanting to have with New Spring Church. And coming back and 18 months, month off, coming back from team night, bang. This is the trajectory and direction that we want to try. I said, I am intrigued to see if it is possible for a church in the West to actually be a community of resurrection life and power. There is one exhortation in the New Testament. Be a faithful witness. That's it. What does it mean to be a faithful witness? To treasure right, to have a good eye. That's what it means. And anyone in our community would be looked after. But here's the catch. It means we're going to have to get to know each other. When I first came to this place, there was a previous elder, and he says, Dave, this is a beautiful church. They are the friendliest bunch of strangers you've ever met. And that would be the same as most churches, right? But if we are actually going to delve into this and actually look after each other and care for each other and actually be in a position where I'm not manipulating, I'm not scheming because I'm part of this narrative of plenty, I have a good eye. But if I'm actually in want and this community is actually going to look after me, it means we've got to get to know each other. We're going to have to do more table stuff together. We're going to have to do more conversation stuff together. We're going to have to do bonfire stuff together. We're going to have to do less of like sitting in like and looking at one person and actually look more looking at each other. That's how it's going to work. This is the community. And you can fast forward and you can study and you can look at the early church and how they practiced and how they molded this and how they lived out the Sermon on the Mount. And guess what? This is what they did. This is what they did. There was no lotto in the first century. Actually, I don't know. There might have been, but you, you know, there was certainly gambling and all that. But this is what it means to be a family of the unworried. You see? To be a family of the unworried. There's this beautiful parable um, that, I, um, that, that, that I absolutely love. Let me read it to you. And um, I have definitely come to an end because I've overstayed my time. One day a man said to God, God, I would like to know what heaven and hell are like. God showed the man two doors. Inside the first one, in the middle of the room, was a large round table with a large pot of vegetable stew. It smelled delicious and made the man's mouth water, but the people sitting around the table were thin and sickly. They appeared to be famished. They were holding spoons with very long handles and each found it possible to reach into the pot of stew and take a spoonful. But because the handle was longer than their arms, they could not get the spoons back into their mouth. The man shuddered at the sight of their misery and suffering. God said, you've just seen hell. Behind the second door, the room appeared exactly the same. There was a large round table with the large pot of wonderful vegetable stew that made the man's mouth water. The people had the same long-handled spoons, but they were well-nourished and plumped and laughing and talking. The man said, I don't understand. And God smiled. It's very simple, he said. Love only requires one skill. These people learned early on to share and feed one another, while the greedy only think of themselves. So why do you worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you have need of them. 
But seek first his kingdom, treasure right, and his righteousness, his justice. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus is speaking to his kingdom people. He has opened up a brand new world called the kingdom of God. And he is instructing us. He is telling us that we can live in a way that is so different to those who bend their knee to mammon. We are to live in such a way and we are to embody and express and demonstrate what it means to be the family of the unworried. Turns out it's possible. I'm going to pray and let that mess with your heart and mind for a moment and then we're going to go. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that as we gather together in places and forums like this, but also in different expressions, that we would have a reignited imagination. An imagination that runs in the opposite direction to this individualistic, increasingly atomized world. But we would have an imagination that looks upon each other as beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Family by blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and that you would transform us and shape us, that the concerns of each other's, the burdens that we carry, that they would be carried together and that we would be an even more faithful witness of what it means to be the family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go forth from this place, something I really feel is that this thing that's intrigued me is the church is supposed to be communities of resurrection life. And with such brokenness in this world and such brokenness in our church, the only thing that is going to bring shalom and healing is resurrection power. And as we move and embody more of the family of God paradigm, I am believing that there is going to be a release of more and more and more resurrection power and resurrection life. But it is going to come just in random, just casual things of, like, let's pray together, let's sit together. It is going to come less on, let's go to Dave, and more of, let me sit with you and let me pray with you. And I'm believing that there's going to be so many stories of God stepping in, because this is the vision that he has for his church. And if we can actually do that, we're actually going to see more of that. Is that okay? Bless you guys. Let's go.